You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. You know, we're kind of here to fulfill your craving for knowledge on fermented foods. And this week, we're going to talk about some lemons, preserved lemons to be exact, fermented lemons, and a little bit about getting an education in fermentation. I'm Daniela. And I am Brandon, and this is episode 17. Before we get into any news or or our topics of the day, the one thing that I wanted to follow up on was black garlic. Again, not... Here we go again. You really like your black garlic, don't you? Well, I finally tried it. So I can say that I do like black garlic, even though it's not fermented. It's an enzymatic process and the Maillard reaction. It's not fermentation. But at the local co-op, I saw a little bag that was uh, had two cloves of, not two cloves, two bulbs of, of garlic that were black garlic. It was reasonably priced, not nearly as expensive as the other stuff we had quoted in that news article from a long time ago. Of Why do you think it's it was so much more? Why was that other one so much more? Yeah. Well, I think it was geared towards chefs in restaurants and different things like that. So it probably makes it seem fancier the more expensive it is. Maybe it makes doing it seem a, fancier. Maybe, maybe it's just a, a better process. quality too. Yeah, it could be different too. I mean, it, this the the one I found was from a Wisconsin company, Blue, Far, uh, Blue Fortune Farm. And uh, I went to their website and looked at their stuff and, and they're calling it fermentation as well. I mean, they called it fermented black garlic, but again, it's an enzymatic uh, reaction. And I, I think I'll put that in the, the notes as well about, or the show notes, which you can find at firmup.com slash podcast slash 17. And uh, in the show notes, I'll put the thing about the, um, I forget the, the place, the Nordic um, people that those chefs that are testing out foods and different things like that, where I found the thing about the black garlic, totally spacing off on on that website. But it's a very good website, so look in the show notes for that one. <laughs> what website? Well, it's in previous the previous episode where we talked about about black garlic not being fermented. Yeah, that website where I found that information is the place that I cannot think of <laughs> uh, right now. So that's great. Um, that that a website <laughs> Nordic Food Lab. I knew it was Nordic something. Nordic Food Lab. I did have it in my show notes. I just didn't. I didn't see it there. But uh, yes, it's not fermented. So it does look pretty cool, though. That's one thing I will have to say. And you tasted it too. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's amazing. I don't think it's necessarily awesome. amazing. Um, it's not fermented. I don't but know it what tastes fermented. Big, um. No, no, it doesn't taste fermented. It's just well, it has- for one, it still tastes like garlic. Okay, not like raw garlic, but um, it definitely has a garlic taste it tastes like candied it, garlic like licorice garlic with yeah, balsamic licorice. vinegar in it and, and, and a bit of mushroom or something like that yeah i mean it's uh it's, it's sticky it's by no means a bad taste um, it's, a very it's good just taste. not a great taste in my opinion um i think it's something that would probably be much better as a spread or other i mean because i just had it by itself um, so I think I on something with a cracker or some type of bread or just on something would be much better. Well, if you remember the Nordic food lab, had said it tastes good with, uh, fermented dairy products as well. So yeah. And then I think that's my point. So I don't right now just as it by itself, I don't see, uh, I don't see what the, the big, uh, big um what the big deal is but i, I liked it i really like the flavor of it so even though it's not fermented i i, I love but it and i really do you really like the flavor or do you just like how it transforms I, sometimes i feel like you kind of like things because like you're really because it's stretchy versus well actually it's it tastes great so is it like do you just like it because it's garlic but it's black and it tastes not like garlic or do you actually if you think about it by itself the taste of it alone do you is it really, I mean, do you like the taste? The transformative action of fermented foods is pretty amazing. Remember, Even it's not fermented. foods that are similar to fermented foods, like black garlic. I would say that for myself, it's more of a, um, it's a slight fascination with the transformation. But I really like the flavors of fermented foods or fermented-like foods. So, it, I mean, it's the same reasons why I like had all the like even the excitement for coffee and different things like that. The Maillard reaction and all the roasting and the flavors that come out and the fermentation of that. You know, the the transformative power of fermented foods is so amazing, and the tastes exotic or even different. Even the manure or, type <laughs> foods, natto. natto. Well, I think that was more of my taking it a little too far. Is why it <laughs> had that kind of tasted the way that manure smells, kind of thing. But in in general, I would say that, yes, 
there are certain things that are maybe I'm not as culturally um, prepared for as in the tastes aren't quite something that I'm accustomed to. But I think a lot of these fermented tastes are acquired tastes and I've just acquired maybe something more for black garlic. Again, not fermented, but close enough that, uh, you know, I, I like those okay. kind of flavors. I just wanted to make I like sure com- you... I like the complex- complexity. Okay. Sometimes I just wonder, and that's what I was just trying to clear up. Is it... The- it's kind of like the complexity in, not that I'm saying it's an easy replacement for anything, but the, the complexity in a um, good raw honey or a maple syrup versus um, processed pure white sugar. You know, Wait, kind of- how are those... The, the taste, the complexity in verse, like something that's refined and, and processed and like but regular garlic, table salt versus uh, sea salt or all these other exotic salts out there like the Hawaiian black salt or different things that I had you try or the Himalayan pink salt. All those different salts have different flavors than along with all those other minerals in them than just like sodium chloride that's been uh, processed and it's the regular white table salt. They all taste different. I like that complexity in foods. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what's fun about it. Yeah, so for me... I just want to make sure... Make sure that I'm not just excited about the... The transformation and the way it looks. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I mean, I, I do like fermented foods because they're little transformers, but they, it's... They're, transformers. Yeah, that, but I, I like them for many different reasons. And uh, So yes, you loved your black garlic. Yes, so... That kind of wraps up that that follow up and and so some well actually this is more follow up as well even though it wasn't so I news. guess I guess my my just one my last thought on this is um I mean for people that really are interested in, in trying it you didn't I guess we didn't really think about that it would be available just at a co op so if anyone really is looking to try some maybe just check out a, a local co op they might have it. I didn't. I was really surprised that you were able to find it just at a store. It was here. just chilling on the shelf. Um. So I mean, yeah, I really, really thought it was something that had to be ordered online or paid. Um. And I mean, the one you got was what, like eight dollars? I mean, not that much. Yeah, eight dollars for two. I mean, bowls. okay, it is. I think, in my opinion, if you were going to eat it regularly, <laughs> you know, you could get pricey. But that's not as much as I was assuming it would be. But so. it's been heated at one hundred and forty degrees for six weeks. <laughs> I mean, it's, it doesn't seem expensive for what I, it is. And, and Although, yeah. I do want to try making it myself now. I'm inspired. Moving on. So this is, again, kind of follow-up, but it, it it's news. It's new news, but it's follow-up to our that Chobani incident that we looked at a lot, that lawsuit from The Greek Faye. yogurt. Phage. That looks like phage. <laughs> Why but... do you always say the phage? You say it the right way, and then you go back to the way you want to say it. Because my, my... So how about just a disclaimer? Faye from now on will be pronounced phage by Brandon. In case there's new listeners that haven't heard <laughs> that before. I just, I, it just always looks like phage to me. And, but <laughs> since I know the proper way to say it now, I say it. But in case but other you... <laughs> people don't know what I'm talking about, they're like, what's Faye? <laughs> um, it's like, just, if you, if you, you have to say it incorrectly too. If so you that... eat phage yogurt. You know what I'm talking about, but the the this is over in in the British High Courts. Um, they, <laughs> I like that British accent there. That was not a British accent. That was just an official accent. Um, uh, it was uh, they the the term Greek was in in question, and could the a uh, New York based company sell Greek yogurt if it wasn't from made in Greece? That's just a little ridiculous. And Faye, originally from Greece, um, made this argument. Again, I know there are different legal bindings and, and, you know, maybe even slightly separate companies being in the different operating, like over in Europe versus operating in the United States. But Fage, Faye, <laughs> Faye makes their freaking Sorry. yogurt in the United States. But do they, they make still, Greek they yogurt in the United States? Yes, they sell it as Greek yogurt in the United oh, States. That's a little hypocritical. So, yes, I think it's hypocritical. And, but the, the British high courts do not agree with us. The high court of England and Wales has restricted Chobani from marketing its product as Greek yogurt. So are there no other yogurt brands selling Greek yogurt in England under that title? Well, unless that. it's made I mean, in I Greece? It doesn't, it's Probably. Like, it's like any of those lawsuits with companies. It doesn't matter if someone else is. It's like if they can get the biggest competition knocked out, then that's the most important. They can still though. sell their yogurt. It's just they can't call it Greek No, no yogurt. I know. I'm just... Which curious is totally if all the other anyway, Greek yogurt. I don't yogurt. know why it's really called Greek yogurt anyway. It's strange yogurt. I mean, that's all we need to know. 
But uh, yeah, so it's uh, in in London and Wales, they're saying that the term is confusing to consumers because the consumers are assuming they're getting it from Greece, which maybe I could understand a little bit more over there. Like, I don't think anyone is too... Well, I'm sure in the, in, in the United States, a lot of people probably think it just comes from Greece. I would think. Not that people really care I too much. I guess I never thought about that. I guess I assume people realize that their milk, their yogurt was mostly being made here. Well, I, mean, I, I guess for imported, me, but... I always knew that it wasn't... I guess for me, the reason I never thought it was a yogurt that came from Greece is because the Greek yogurt that I've seen at the store is not from Greece. So I just assumed, well, that's just the type until obviously I looked more into it. But so I guess I should ask around and just see what other people like. Hey, so Greek yogurt, um, do you think it's from Greece? Good question. I think yes. Do an unofficial poll and find out. See if your friends and people you know know anything yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be really curious to actually ask. Now. I still think it's kind of I don't know. It, it, it's kind of like French fries. I know it's like yeah. Are are we confused that the French fries are not being made in France? I don't know. Maybe it's. It, it, I guess it could be again a little bit different because the countries are a little closer. England and, and Greece, you know, a little bit more like thinking that things are coming from certain areas if they're you know being imported from. I guess maybe I won't be as hard on it as I would be initially, but I still think it's a little ridiculous since Faye still sells their Greek yogurt that they make in New York, upstate New York, and they sell it in the United States and call it Greek yogurt still. Um, and I'm assuming most of the people that work in the, the factory in upstate New York are not of in Greek Greece. origin. So I, I, I could be wrong on that. Maybe they only hire people <laughs> from Greece. Okay. <laughs> we get your point. But what uh, were you? Another note is wait i'm sorry what what was this article about then i totally just i'm sorry what what are you what are you asking about we were just talking about the previous article yeah but what did we why did you bring it up again because they just officially oh they did dis- officially i totally somehow did not hear you say that yes, <laughs> i was like what British is why high courts ban shobani from using the greek yogurt oh, term they can still sell so their yogurt but they and... have to change their label okay. and they have to do it this has been officially decided i think it was last week or so thank you wow so, moving on, might be possible to get some deer cheese soon from New Zealand. They're deer milking cheese. deer. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, just like you can milk anything. I mean... I guess I don't ever think of deer as milkable. Yes, but in, there is... Or like, I don't know if it's these scientists, I think, that are, are milking deer in New Zealand and making cheese from it. It's going to be expensive cheese. It's going to be... 84 bucks a liter. And yes, sorry for that pun. How much can a deer produce? I mean, it's just... Not that much. That's why it's expensive. And so I I wonder here, is it really much different from regular standard milk? Bovine cow Um, milk? Yeah. uh, Well, think about mare's milk much different than... Mare's milk is closer in... No, but I'm just curious, like the cheese itself, how is it really have a different, is it, you know, goat cheese? Yes, it has definitely a different flavor and taste. And so I just wonder if this new cheese is going to actually be that much different or is it just the fact that it's deer milk and it's just going to be more expensive? Just curious. Well, it is a scarce commodity, so I can understand why it's expensive and it's exotic and it's going to taste different i'm assuming i mean just like goat sheep cow camel horse donkey well, they all taste different i feel like i haven't tried it i haven't i haven't tried camel milk or horse milk but you know i'm i'm i've <laughs> i've read and given the the makeup of these different yogurts they're, they're going to taste different so yes i think that deer milk deer milk cheese would probably taste different as well but uh it's going to cost cheese. you lots of bucks. And uh, Oregon is um, trying to, Oregon legislation is discussing making a state microbe a part of all of their other state things that they have. Like they've got their state tree, their state fruit, their state flower, their state animal, I'm assuming. But <laughs> I, I don't I don't know what their long list of state things they have, but they want to have a state microbe now as well, which is kind of cool. I think it'll be the first state that has a microbe as that is pretty sweet. That is awesome, actually. This one's not for fermented foods or anything like that. It's it, uh, or probiotics as much. It's for uh, beer. But there's you know part of the economy 
and uh, local breweries. So they they're they're wanting to uh, choose a state microbe specific to brewing. Um, it would be a brewer's yeast, and so specific to brewing, that would be their state mi- microbe. So they're looking to pass legislation for that. And uh, the specific ones used in in a lot of Oregon's craft beers, I guess. So interesting, kind of cool. I think every state should have a microbe. I <laughs> I don't know. I'm assuming maybe I, I could see California being next. Maybe I think Wisconsin needs some kind of Lactococcus bacteria or Lactobacillus, <laughs> of like you know something something dairy related. Maybe you could start it or look into how to. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, how would that work? I don't know. We could just make one up and start assigning them to states and seeing if they stick. Sounds good. Okay. So then uh, another kind of cool thing that I think more farms need to do is there's there's this thing out in California and it's uh, called crop mobbing. It's an awesome idea where uh, that this, this, one, this one guy, and I may mispronounce his name um, just because it's got a lot of letters in it, Nick uh, Papadopoulos. And uh, he is in Sonoma County, sees, works on a farm, sees that there's a lot of food that goes to waste. And so he just uh, decided or thought about how there's a lot of hungry people. And so why not connect that, like connect organizations that can feed the hungry people with all the, the, the perishable food. Well, that way it's being composted. So not fully wasted, but not fully wasted. Yes, it's composted, but a, a lot of the labor is wasted. I mean, you can make compost yeah. a lot easier than harvesting a whole bunch of cabbage and then tossing it into a like growing it and, and then planting it, uh, you know, there's a lot of labor that's involved in it. That's a lot of money and investment that's been lost by doing that. And so he created a, a website, cropmobster.com, uh, I, I believe it is. It will be in the show notes, firmup.com slash podcast slash 17. But the, uh, uh, you know, so it's not just for hungry people. I mean, well, everyone's uh, uh, like hungry homeless i guess in the sense no it's not think. just for no it's i don't think it was for homeless people either it's just for you know it's it's for anyone that's interested they can sign up for alerts through this website and they will get alerts of local farms in the area that have extra perishable items for sale majorly discounted yes um you know they'll they'll so if you sign up for alerts you get alerts that broadcast the details about the farm and any freebies or discounts so sometimes you know it's just nice to get those things cleared out of the farm. So I don't know what kind of things the farms are giving away for free, but again, heavily discounted, discounted even a little bit. Like if you're, uh, you know, wanting to get a bunch of cabbages for making sauerkraut, that's an awesome way to get it and an awesome way uh, to get it inexpensively and to support so that the farmer can reap. Both parties reap benefits from it, essentially. Definitely. I mean, because again, all that wasted, otherwise wasted labor, they can make or at least break even. If they're, you know, they're not going to be in, in the red for all this perishable, these perishable items. Although this makes me wonder. So, you know, eventually what if everyone just decides to not go to farmer's markets and purchase fresh, you know, vegetables and fruits and they just wait for their alerts? (laughs) I I mean, I know that won't happen, but. Yeah. I think there's enough people that like the simplicity of, or the fun of going to a farmer's market or different such like that. No, no, but I also mean. you're talking about only certain items. A lot of items will sell out. It's just certain items like a bunch of cabbage or a bunch of, I don't know what else would be, you know, like uh, tomatoes and things. Tomatoes can't last that long, I would imagine. But actually a lot of, I, I think uh, if I remember in the article that I first found this in was that uh, Nick was, or I don't know if he was, or if, if just the, the journalist that was writing about it was talking about how a lot, like, I forget the percentage, like 20%, 30% of the, the, the food that goes to the farmer's market to be sold ends up leaving with the farmer as well. So they don't, they don't sell everything that they have there. And then again, some of that percentage of that is going to be waste then. So because food only lasts so long. So getting people to really start, I don't think you because I think you have to get it in bulk. I don't think you can just get a small amount because it's kind of the the mentality that if one person's if someone gets the alert, they want to grab some of it, then it's their responsibility to figure out what to do with all of it. Like if they get like a you know 150 pounds of well, it sounds like that if that is the case, that would really benefit the people that ferment. Yeah, definitely. Or I mean, people or that even have a lot can, of friends or, and family or, or yeah. you know, different things like that. But the, the other, just the nice thing about it that's pointed out on the website is, or in this article, or I don't remember where, but it's that 
you know, there's no manager, no middleman, no hierarchy, no fee. There's no fee for any of this. There's no fee for the farmers to post this stuff. I don't, I don't believe it's just an option for people. It's just a, a open form of communication, creating a network of people that are willing to find the, that see the value in food that would otherwise be thrown away because there's not a market for it. Now there's a market for it. And it seems like it's been kind of successful so far. Yeah. It's exciting. So kind of like one of our, our, our topics is, is, is news related, but um, it's, it's regarding fermentation and education and there's different schools, different colleges, universities that are offering fermentation specific degrees. Now, some of the first ones that ever were doing this were brewing specific. So wine and beer brewing. Now the fermentation is kind of spreading out and there was a uh, press release for Colorado State University that has begun to offer a fermentation uh, bachelor's degree. And it's, you know, so the it would be covering anything from yogurt, cheese, wine, beer, of course, and sauerkraut and all these different kinds of things, looking at fermentation food science. And so it's a, it's a, it's a BS from Colorado State University, you know, and, and some of the classes that I, because I, I went to their website and looked at, at some of the different things, some of the ones that I think sound pretty cool are fermentation microbiology, food chemistry, sensory evaluation of fermented foods. You know, that's the kind of stuff I could geek out on. I have to say, though, I, um, I do feel that this is the type of degree that one would get only if they plan to get them like go to grad school. I mean, what just by having a bachelor's in fermentation, I mean, what kind of job would one get? So it's, it's just sounds like it'd be a prerequisite almost to like going, you know, um, to, for like a microbiology or I don't know. It's just, it it seems like one of those kind of like, you know, an English degree, just undergrad, you can't really do much with that. Unless you just plan to be a writer and not well, you don't have, have a job. to do something with an English degree. I mean, you get a different job. I mean, many people with like, I, well, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I just feel like the degree itself is not really benefit. Well, okay, of course, it's beneficial. People are learning, and it definitely sounds intriguing. It just in a sense, is if they want to get a job in what they go to school for, you know, um, it doesn't sound like. Well, I'm there's want- actually quite a few jobs. Um, I mean, um, just with that degree though. Yeah. I mean, so someone that you had a, a degree in that are prepared for, you know, going on into anything else specific to fermentation science. So additional um, schooling. Yeah. Additional schooling. I mean, it could be, uh, food science and technology. So again, additional schooling, they could go into food, health and safety. Health well, no, that's, I, yeah. like, that's a very specific thing that could be very specific to that. They could, you know, they could go into winemaking and brewing. They, and that's, um, Oregon State University has, I think it's State University, or one of Oregon's universities has a program for that's more geared towards brewing and not as much for food fermentation. But it's they're they're looking to uh, get more funding for that program because a lot of the local breweries, again, probably part of the reason why they want the microbes, the state microbe, is because local uh, breweries are an important part of the economy there. Um, that a lot of the breweries are hiring directly from graduates that graduate from that program. So there are very specific things, specific programs and uh, dairy would be another, another one. So people that are going into any kind of cheese or fermentation or otherwise related to dairy, someone could probably go work at Chobani or something like that, you know, and make strained yogurts if they had a degree in, in this for any kind of science related position i'm assuming that if food related position this would probably be helpful and again they could do something completely different and it's just an education and and learning but there there's a lot like uh you know entrepreneurship is another option that they list well yeah that's the one that makes now, sense you know entrepreneurship wise i i mean i think that there's probably other ways if someone just wants to go into business for themselves well it really depends if they want to go into business for themselves doing, you know, a lot of different ferments, they could probably get the licenses and otherwise to, to do those things without going to school for it. If they just want to be an entrepreneur, um, you know, and they could do a stagiary or, or, or uh, do a stage program like, uh, like cultured pickle shop out in, in Berkeley, California. They, they offer on, on their website, they say that they offer stages, stages being a culinary term for an unpaid internship. So I, I, if I had the time or the availability, I would definitely, you know, 
take up culture pickle shop on, on their thing that they have on their website, on their fact page, it will be in the show notes too, but that, uh, you know, they, they had in their frequently asked questions, a, a spot that says, I am interested in learning. Can I do a stage at your shop? And again, stage being an, an unpaid internship. internship for chefs and otherwise, uh, culinary interested people. And they say, yes, we have had stagiaries from all over the world. When you come be ready to work hard and ask questions and you will learn a lot and be able to stay as long as you want. Otherwise you will learn how to scrub beets and not be invited back. So as long as a person's really captivated, interested in wanting to learn and willing to work hard, because I can imagine that kind of harsh though, you will not be invited back. It it sounded very friendly in the way that, I mean, you don't like really, I mean, it's not a place just to go hang out. I mean, if you're staging, you're working and it's hard work to be making that much cabbage, that much kombucha, that much fermented vegetables on a regular basis. I mean, you've watched a couple of videos of, of their operation. It, it looks like it'd be a lot of work. But it looks fun, though. It, do- it does. It looks a lot of fun. That's why I'd, I'd, I would have an amazing time working hard. Just go there. Go for like a month. I know. That'd be awesome. I am sure that I, that, that's, that's kind of the thing. It's like I'm fermenting all the time, but I, I'm like the kind of education that a person can get from, from either becoming an entrepreneur in fermented foods, very specialized stuff. I'm more of a generalist anyway. Like I, I like to try a whole bunch of different things and keep getting interested in different stuff. I mean, kind of like this podcast, we go all over the place and we're not just specialized in sauerkraut or yogurts. Um, even though I do have a, a very fond place in my heart for, for heirloom yogurts, but I, yes, you do. You um, love your yogurts. I, my heirloom yogurts. Yes. <laughs> heirloom. Yes. Being the, um, the key term. Yes. And, but I think that learning directly interning with these different places of, is very much so an option outside of the college route. Now, if a person is in Wisconsin and wants to be a cheesemaker, that degree would become very helpful. A degree from from yes, because Wisconsin requires cheesemakers to actually be legit cheesemakers and not just someone out there that can say I'm a cheesemaker and have no educational background, which is cool. Yeah, it's the only state. It's not the only state ever, but it's the only state that still has something like that, and also the first state that ever did it. And so it's the only one that that has a requirement. They. Uh, Require cheesemakers to be licensed. And in order to be licensed, so, so if a person doesn't have a background in cheese, as in a degree in a fermented dairy, uh, a, a BS in, in some kind of dairy fermentation degree, then, or or have worked for like a huge cheesemaking place for 10 years or something like that, then they have to go through the process. Wait, that would work? There are some other ways that a person can do it, but this is, if someone's just like, Hey, I want to be a cheesemaker. I want to start up my own business and make cheese in Wisconsin. They, for, if they want to make cheese for retail consumption, which is so if they're going to make cheese at all to sell, then they, it's going to take about one to two years to go through the program to be able to get it, get it done. It's going to cost about 3000 in class fees. And, uh, those classes include cheese making, production of safe dairy foods, principles of milk pasteurization, dairy sanitization, you know, a bunch of interesting, important things. Some seem a little bit more boring than others, but definitely very important if a person's going to be a cheesemaker. Now, you know, they also have to do at least 240 hours of internship under a licensed cheesemaker. And then they have to pass a written test. So there's quite a bit to become a cheesemaker in Wisconsin. So a degree might be a little bit more interesting or direct way longer more expensive but depending on where a person is in their life it might be a viable way to do that but that's all just to obtain it um to be able to legally sell cheese in in wisconsin i put in the show notes a uh, well the license requirements for becoming a wisconsin cheesemaker in case you want to be a wisconsin cheesemaker Uh, even if you don't live in wisconsin maybe you want to move to wisconsin because you want to be held to a higher caliber of uh questioning and licensure my question is what do other states require then from cheesemakers in order to allow them to sell cheese well there's health code requirements just like licenses i would think well yeah there'd be health code licenses or different things that they have to pay but really oh and i guess there would be there'd be regulation and i mean the the just not a background in the, a sense of- the the government is also uh, like has a like a policy for listeria outbreaks and and different uh issues in dairy fermentation i mean they're they're being watched they're, it's just different it's like in order but in order to be able to sell cheese at all in wisconsin you have to have this licensure which the licensure doesn't actually cost that much it's like 75 dollars 
It's just everything that comes up to it. You have a lot to show that you're legit and that you've done those things. Now, it is interesting in uh, one of the other links to a blog, The Cheese Underground, I, I posted her defense of the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Law, license law, but there is also in the comments a lot of interesting information back and forth about, well, is this the large cheese businesses lobbying to keep the small cheese guys down kind of thing? Um, you know, wh- where is the true motive coming for the cheese so. license? That's I can't because it's not it's reasonably priced, and if someone passes it, they can sell cheese. It's I I I, I doesn't to me. I don't. I wouldn't think that's what it is. Yeah, but. I could see it. I could see it either way because I get it at the same time. I don't know much about the politics of of cheese in Wisconsin, even living in in Wisconsin. But at the same time, just thinking about it very casually, it's. I can see it to a certain extent, the licensure being a protection of Wisconsin being the dairy dairy state. state. You know, it's like different um, America's dairy land. I mean, so there's, there's different things that maybe they want to uphold, although there's excellent cheese coming out of different parts of the United States. So it's not like they have the only um, name on cheese. So uh, like the only say on it. So it's, I don't know. I could see it either way. I don't think it's, it, it doesn't seem unreasonable to make someone go through that kind of effort. I mean, I would, think that it would arguably make them I mean, it's better. like no different than being a hairstylist or any of those smaller shorter um massage therapists or anything like that i mean well sure yeah there's definitely licensure and regulation in different states and some states have it they have regulation for different professions and then other states don't for certain things so it's not really that it's just odd because it's the only state that has it but yeah you know it, it has it had it for a long time i wonder it's had it yes it's had it for a long time i can't tell you the 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 time exactly off the i can't remember that exactly but um but yeah these this this idea of education and i think that yes a lot of information about fermentation can be found like so many other topics in the world i mean you can find almost everything on the internet nowadays and there's some excellent textbooks out there that uh that i reference regularly to try and well to put together these shows too but there's excellent information in some of these textbooks that would be in college courses. I think if I were to do college over again, though, I, I don't, I don't know if I, I think I could pull through and, and do all the chemistry and, and, uh, background stuff that also comes along with it. But like, I'd like to do a degree in fermentation with a, a minor in microbiology and, uh, or food microbiology or something like that. I think that would be, um, my interest the these there's there's sometimes walls i hit and things i just don't understand sure i can get to the point of understanding them the other thing is i think would be great about having a fermentation degree or having access to a university fermentation labs would be the labs would be the access hopefully to electron microscopes and and to really be able to to view these bacteria in isolation and in uh cooperation with other bacteria and just kind of really examine things on a deeper level that are a little difficult to do in the home setting not that I can't find out information about this stuff or read stuff in, in books, but sometimes I just want to connect with the microbes a little bit more. <laughs> so cheesy, but... But so uh, true. Don't you want to see the... Yeah, I know. I think I, I was going to say, I think that's probably the, the only reason I would consider it. I just, I'm totally opposite of you. I just... Yes, it, I'm sure... I, I don't need the in-depth understanding. Um, I just think the, just the basic concept of fermentation is fascinating and um, knowing a little bit more is fun, but not that. It is all which no, I'm very grateful for people that study all of this and know it. Otherwise, oh, there's so many people that understand way more about the microbiology and everything else than than I do. But I still find it interesting, and that's kind of the thing. Is like some of it goes way over my head, but you know, I I I feel like I can still get a decent grasp of things. And you know, every time I learn a little bit more, uh, every time I go back to the textbooks, the microbiology textbooks and whatnot, it's it's exciting. But I just I continue to learn more about that all the time. And and this seems like a great opportunity for someone else that's captivated and interested in those kind of things as well. But it's by no means the only way to get into fermentation. Well, especially if someone wants to just do home fermentation, but someone that's looking to have a career in fermented foods, this is one avenue that is there. Again, there's only a handful of schools that are doing this, but it's a, it's a sign acknowledging that, Hey, this is really a field that is well, has always been popular in certain ways, but these these more generalized fermentation, uh, food fermentation things that aren't just brewery related um, or dairy related, it's kind of cool. 
I have to say it's a it's a step forward for the future of fermented foods. Go ahead. So lemons. I uh <laughs> I love how you bring up new topics. I couldn't think of any good transition, so you know, I just had to kind of just plop it down. Preserved lemons. Now, this is one of those things that given being burned by so-called fermented garlic, which isn't fermented, I really tried to make sure these, again, they're called preserved lemons. So pre- preservation happens in many different ways. But they have salt, so they're fermented. Well, Anything with no, salt you can is cure fermented. things with salt as well. Just like we were talking about the fish sauce last time and how... Isn't you know, it mainly meats that you'd cure? Well, you can keep things... It, too high of a salt content is going to not let the microbes do anything either. If you have too much salt, uh, not too much salt, but if you have so much salt, they're not going to ferment. They're not going to do much of anything. Sure, I was just the, trying to get a point across of the, the salt means fermentation. No, it doesn't. But it means salting. Uh, like it, it means like salt's going to draw do certain enzymatic things to it. It's going to and through osmosis, it's going to pull out the water and do different things. But it's not necessarily going to be an environment that any or at least many bacteria will be able to thrive in. So. So you really don't think I could just mix salt with a vegetable? You can, but if you put too much salt... Well, yeah, but that's... Which that's there's quite the a bit of salt in preserved lemons. So so that's what I'm talking about. I just wanted to make sure that it is actually fermented. And in many books, it does... Or a few sources do say that it is fermented, but I cannot find anything specific on which bacteria and yeast are involved specifically, which for any other ferment, I can usually find. Um minus black garlic, but then found out that that one wasn't fermented. So I'm interested since preserved lemons, as we'll get into, are relatively heavily salted. And so it's just what bacteria are actually present and creating this would be very interesting. So if you know, do email in at podcast at firmup.com and and let us know or hit us up on Twitter. Tweet us the answer to this riddle. But... For a little, just stepping back. <laughs> From what? From preserved lemons. Let's step back <laughs> to the history of lemons. Um, no, it really, it's, which was kind of interesting to think about, about lemons. It's like, okay, where do those come from? Sure, lemons and limes. I think about those a lot. You know, citrus fruits in general, oranges, whatnot. But. I think it's pretty cool that there are different kinds of lemons. I didn't really know that much about lemons besides a lemon is a lemon. There you go. Yes, there's different kinds of lemons, like the Myers lemon or the Lisbon and other, like there's the thicker rind and the thinner rind, the sweeter, the the, more citric. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different things, but there's all kinds of citrus out there too. And so way back in the day, lemons are a hybrid. They're not something that originated. Well, they're, they're more recent in history than limes. Limes are older than lemons. I guess I hadn't thought about it, but they, it, See, it, I would have thought the other way around. That's kind of what I thought too. You know, maybe it's the size difference, the lemon, the limes. I think are, it's because lemons are more popular, I feel like, than limes. In the United States, maybe so, but not necessarily across the world. But the it, that it's interesting to think of it as a two-step hybridization that may have occurred in the first one being citron crossed with lime, and that happened in India and Pakistan supposedly thought to have uh, happened like that. And uh, citron, if you're not familiar with it, is a thick-skinned, less acidic, and relatively dry flesh kind of citrus fruit. And so that was mixed with lime in uh, India and Pakistan. When you say mixed, how did that Hybridized, the way that like plants cross-pollinate and, or however the farmers and agriculturists were... So it was were human... Human intervention, most oh, okay. likely. But it could have been... Now you're getting into botany and I don't want to say anything that I don't understand because I don't know if, if there's any grafting or otherwise involved or if it's just cross pollinization the way that any. So this is something that we'll look up and get back to you in the next episode. Uh, Probably not, but yes. Why do you say probably not? Well, okay. Yes, you will. Okay. We will. I will, I will wait for your follow up on that one. And then, so then there was, so there's a citron and the lime. And then there, so that, so you have those, that new, that new blend, which we don't know what that one's called, but then that was crossed with the pumelo in the Middle East. And again, this is all just 
guesswork, but this is kind of kind of what it seems like the it happened. And the pomelo is a thick-skinned Southeast Asian sweet citrus fruit, fruit which is the largest citrus fruit ever. I don't know ever, but at this point, ever. it's six six to ten inches in diameter. So it's a pretty darn big citrus, bigger than a grapefruit, bigger than most any other citrus I've ever seen. But that one mixed with that citron. So citron, lime, and pomelo kind of make up what the lemon may have or most likely derived from. And so we're talking about lemons arriving in the Mediterranean around 100 AD, and then in Spain, 400 AD. So they've been around for quite a while, but not they're, they're still relatively new in history. And then, so then we have um, the lemon and lime both came... Um, both of those words are, are from Arabic and, uh, and they come from a Persian word. So it, that is where we kind of lead into preserved lemons with, um, with looking at preserved lemons being popular in different areas of the world, but mainly in the region of, of Morocco and, you know, and then other more general areas of, uh, you know, North Africa and Asia and Italy too. Uh, but Morocco is kind of one of those areas uh, where it's, it's definitely a huge part of their culinary tradition. And, uh, so looking at a cookbook that, that you looked at too, uh, that that was uh yes i did murad i believe is how you you say his name it's the new moroccan murad new moroccan by murad lalu and you can find that on amazon or anywhere books are sold locally but uh it's a it, he's got a chapter and he called it dude preserved lemons so i i he's a he's a, a chef somewhere in the united states i don't know off the top of my head where but he's originally from California. morocco isn't it? Probably California. And his restaurant won't like this best award for the Moroccan food or something like that. Sounds sounds good. Sounds legit. Yeah, in this competition, the only restaurant I obviously don't have anything straight here, but yeah. Yeah, well, he again has that that chapter all about preserved lemons titled Dude Preserved Lemons and uh it's it he refers to Moroccan uh well first he refers to uh preserved lemons as Morocco's greatest culinary contribution to the world and then he goes on to say that no wait Morocco's greatest contribution to the world so not just culinary that that it's the the Moroccan's uh greatest contribution is their preserved lemons there are other preserved lemons traditions and otherwise but that that is their their biggest contribution according to uh, to this, because they put it chef. in everything they eat. They put it in everything they eat. Well, not everything. I mean, it's in a lot of dishes. Kind of like we use salt. Kind of like how we went back referencing last last episode. Well, it's you can kind of compare preserved lemons in cooking to soy sauce or fish sauce in the cool Asian cooking. The thing about preserved lemons is you don't actually eat the flesh; you eat the skin, the rind. Yeah, pretty sweet. Well, it, yes, it Thank does you, actually become, my it does actually become rather sweet. Surprisingly, it's, it mellows, preserving a lemon mellows out the lemon. I just think it's cool that we're not eating the, the flesh. Now you can eat the flesh, but that was the, the first thing when I first fermented lemons, preserved lemons, I, uh, just popped a whole thing in my mouth after it was done fermenting for a month and a piece it, of it, not like a whole lemon. <laughs> No, not not an entire lemon, but a, a whole chunk. quarter okay. chunk of it. The skin, the flesh. And while it tasted good, really, the, the key part, you can use the other parts in different cooking. You can use the syrup that kind of forms as, as in dressings or other things, just using a little bit of it. But the, the rind is really where it's at. So peeling off the flesh from that and just eating some of the rind kind of like a candied salted lemon oh i wonder what would happen if you hydrate it hydrate it dehydrate it <laughs> oh dehydrate it <laughs> yes i wonder i'll try it if it would be like that lemon candy in the store but oh but it, that has sugar on it so you want to you want to douse this in so a, a sugary salty lemon yeah i think it'd be cool to try well yeah i mean i know i was really intrigued by the the process of preserving lemons so i just did a batch just for fun of 
fan of it because it looked fun slicing it into how'd you do it how'd i do what how'd you make the lemon since you just did it did you just do it today yeah um you were I, inspired it just looks fun i'm not sure looks what i where? would use use them for <laughs> once they're fermented because i'm not like the biggest cook but but you've tried preserved lemons you tried yeah, some of the ones i made a, a little bit i think once yeah it's really good yeah, yeah. I'm. You've made some dishes too with lemons, I think. Um, no, but I really. I. It was just fun. Um, you just cut them into, um, four. Well, how how would you say how? Like you cut them. You don't cut all the way through, the lemon. You cut almost to the end. Um, how? Think about cutting the lemon into quarters. Only stop towards the yeah, bottom so you. that one yeah. section is still attached. I didn't know how to describe that, and then putting a whole bunch of salt on the inside. It just looks so cool. And then putting it in a mason jar and then piling, kind of pushing it down, but not too much, but pushing it enough where it's squeezing it a little bit. You essentially want to fill up a whole mason jar. Um, it generally, depending what size of lemon, it could be like four to five lemons in there. In a quart size mason jar. In a quart size, yeah, mason jar. And just press it tightly in there. And it just, it just looks so cool. Like it just looks pretty. And then well, that's, let the, it that's sit. just the first step. Yeah, you let it sit um, 24 hours. And then the following day, um, you need to pour a cup and a quarter of uh, a cup and a half of lemon juice in well, it. I think so it's, it's not so much fully, the measurement. It's yeah, it just much needs to be needs fully to be. covered in lemon juice. Yeah, and then let it sit them for in a lemon month. juice. There is another way that you can, that, you know, uh, another way that they do it in Morocco sometimes is using vinegar instead of the lemon juice is a cheaper way to do it, but that just doesn't make as complex of flavors. And so submerging it in the lemon, a lemon salt brine of sorts, lemon juice salt yeah, brine. Yeah, and let it sit for a month and then there you go and you can experiment. But um, I want to try, and I have no idea how this will affect it, but I want to try doing sugar. Well, Turn again, it into you're some probably alcoholic cur- drink. Alcoholic drink. So yes, because you're going to, instead of, if it is lactic acid bacteria that are a part of the fermentation, I, I just don't know which specific I just think ones. it'd be fun. See, I, this is where we're so different. I, I'm i all for experimenting without having a clue what will happen. I just think that's what's fun about it, not knowing what to expect. Yeah, like, so I, I just mean, want to try that. this random thing and, and see what happens. I do that too. I just think mm, that... No, not so much. You read. If there's something to read about it, I do. But like these yeah. different experiments with these dehydrating of fermented foods you know, to see what kind of flavor profiles I come up with. I mean, I don't really have anything fully to go off of. I'm yeah. Just... Brandon tends to dehydrate anything that he ferments or tries to ferment. And if it doesn't turn out as plain, he just dehydrates it. And then, and then... Well, whether it did or didn't, I mean, it's just because it changes things. I mean, I had some green beans that were a little bit, little bit, the texture just wasn't quite perfect. They were fine. It was mainly because I used green bean or I got some green beans that were on sale at the store and then forgot to use them for a few days or it, before you fermented before i decided to put them in a salt brine and you know so making dilly beans dilly beans that's that's one thing i just dilly bean i don't know i don't i don't like the the term dilly beans but that's what they were garlic dilly bean dilly beans um you know garlic dill green beans is kind of how i prefer to say it but that sounds so boring i like that more garlic dill green yeah, beans yeah dilly beans sounds weird sounds like it's like a Got your dilly billy meme? Yeah. Are you talking to a little kid? I don't know. It just sounds weird. Um, uh, Sorry to everyone that we just offended that loves the term dilly beans. But it's just, yeah, the garlic dill green beans that I did were just like the texture was a little soft because I think they were already starting to soften and the cell walls were starting to break when I put them into the the brine. And so dehydrating them was okay. It actually tasted very similar to my experiment of dehydrating sauerkraut, but the texture was different. So instead, I did a second batch and I doused them with some olive oil, some of like the cheap kind of Parmesan that's grated already and everything like that and and put some cayenne pepper in it along with a little bit of oregano and, and basil and I think some pepper. Cayenne. Yeah, definitely the cayenne pepper in it. And then dehydrated that and hey, it tastes a lot. I mean, I would need to work on the proportions and mixtures of, of the seasoning, but I think it tastes good. Adding that extra flavor after the fermentation might be the trick. So I'm experimenting with more of those things now. But again, like, yes, your dehydrated lemon rind might taste uh, fermented. I think that's the only one I'm really excited about. Also, this makes me wonder, it kind of want to try, is doing the same thing with orange oranges. Doing, uh, preserving oranges? Yeah, just 
to compare the two. Yeah, um, which there and was then, actually a um, a reference I uh, I found a, a recent or I'd, I had re- I remember seeing a recent post um, over on the Fickle blog um, from uh, that that had preserved grapefruit lime and orange so that's in the show notes as well oh oh so people have done this darn it i was thinking i was going to be cool and try something i'm just joking no you can do with all different things and and the nice thing about the the fickle post is that it's uh that's uh a fickle with the ph and uh is that uh she writes about how you know different the different things to look for in, in these different things like small grapefruits are better for it with the with the thinner skin which that's interesting because i think of a lot of times like myers lemons have a thinner skin and they're not necessarily the best for preserving it's the thicker skinned lemons which are better because again the skin is you use the skin the rind or the rind is what you're you're going to be using but for the grapefruits on that um that was recommended on there it was that it was the smaller grapefruit with thinner skin so i i don't know what the concept is behind that but maybe there's different different things or maybe this the crunch I don't think you're gonna, anything is going to get softer, but, um, but, uh, but also another note that was interesting from that blog post was that limes might get discolored some because of the salt interacting with I see. I don't know. I don't have an issue with discoloration or colors in food. And that's why I'm always so. You're not a nitrates adder to your. Well, I just don't get why people are so big on it. And it's like, well, we have to add this or even just food coloring, which that's a whole new topic, but just, I don't get it. It's food. Who cares? Like, why does something have to be so perfect? Well, presentation does make a difference on. on but that's silly. It's the taste. But it's more than just the taste. I'm I mean, sure. sure I I'm love, sure sight has something to I do think, with it. I, and I agree to an extent. Like when you know, there's a dinner and a, the meal is presented really nicely. It it just makes it more enjoyable because it's kind of fun. But uh, why ch- why change something if that's not how it? supposed to because look. you don't realize maybe what's how we're being affected like, like i under... don't care if my meat doesn't look red well yeah i don't i don't mind that kind of stuff like so i mean nitrates like i don't in... think we would really care if we were brought up in a society where that's how we for the first time saw meat or certain sure but some of the things are ingrained a little oh where did i just listen to this it was on a podcast somewhere but it was related to food and i can't remember what it was but this is auditory not visual but looking at potato chips the crunch that it makes or the crunch that fresh food makes is a signal to our you know i don't know if it's to our lizard brain or different different. stuff like that but the crunch actually affects us like if we if we don't hear like if there's like uh you you know wearing headphones that play different auditory tunes to get it so that it doesn't if like not just head i don't know what how they're if you don't hear the crunch if you don't hear the crunch people think that the 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 participants in the, the those studies thought that the chip was stale well, that, okay. So, so what is visually affecting us as well? I don't know. But my my point is if we were from birth not introduced to these beautifully colored foods that aren't meant to be that bright or certain colors, we would You mean like yogurts that have all that artificial color in them and different stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, like we wouldn't know otherwise. So we wouldn't really, we, we wouldn't care. I just don't get who thought to start doing this. It just, it makes no sense. The crunch is a different story because things are crunchy and we hear it and um they should be crunchy well i don't know people think that things should be red but that's because they've been introduced since birth and if no one ever did it people wouldn't know any about better well i don't i don't i don't know anyway i'm done go ahead well if you if you haven't tried preserved lemons before which if you buy them they're kind of expensive uh and so if if you haven't tried them before it's kind of like a saltiness it, like it brings a bunch of saltiness acidity and in, in a like a great citrus aroma like it smells i remember when i first opened the first jar of preserved lemons that i made and the smell transformation is just so much different any bitterness in the rind is gone so that's why we're talking eating the rind it's like the bitterness is gone from it that like edge is gone from the lemons I just in general keep imagining for some reason once that is done fermenting adding some sugar on top of it like the salt and sugar together i just think it'd be so delicious do you have any lemons left? Yes. I, I'm going to try that. Well, one way to do that is through making a Vietnamese lemonade. You add sugar to it? Yeah. It's like, so a Vietnamese salty lemonade is using preserved lemons, which are going to have that salty. And, you know, it's already starting to sweeten a little bit. It still has acidity, definitely. But you use the rind, like you actually use the flesh of that as well. So you use the flesh and the rind and put like you know a wedge or two of of preserved lemons in a 
full 16 ounce glass and add water and sugar and well muddle the uh the lemons first you know so press them down release all their oils or whatnot that might be in them still and put in the sugar water and you got lemonade best tasting lemonade i've had really Even though it's not lemonade season is it really best tasting lemonade you've ever it had? Was. I, that salt just adds so much in the complexity that comes from the preserved lemon. I just lemons. feel like sometimes you say things are best because they're odd. No, it's not hot at all. It's <laughs> actually tastes... Salty drinks are very refreshing sometimes. Not salty, salty drinks, but like salt, like a little bit of like salt. A, a like a hint of salt. What's that, what's that thing made with love? With, made with, uh, with strained yogurt that is then... Or maybe it's, no, it's oh, not strained yogurt. The... It's just, sorry, it's just yogurt watered down with a little bit of salt. And then blend it up until it's like nice and bubbly uh, or like foamy. No, no. Oh, what is that called? That's going to drive me. Is it from, is it generally made from horse milk? No, you're thinking of erog or oh, you're thinking yeah. of kumis. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about like uh, something, uh, it's a Middle Eastern drink that is just taking yogurt, watering it down, adding a pinch of salt and then blending it. I don't know. Have I had this? It, adding ice to it? Yes. I, I think I... Are you sure? I don't remember drinking anything milky with ice. Well, it's not very milky. It's very watered down. Uh-oh. So it's just, it's nice and refreshing. And that little bit of salt just adds something to it. So I think that this Vietnamese salty lemonade is, is very good as well. And an extra spin to put on it, which actually made, because I, I'm not big on lemonade because it's sweet. So maybe I like oh, the saltiness because, because of that. But one thing, since, you know, like I have my, definitely not a love hate relationship, but I'm still trying to figure out if I like water, uh, water kefir. That's a great way to add that in. So using preserved lemons and instead of sugar water, use water kefir. So it's already got some effervescence to it. And then mix those two together. You got a slightly effervescent salty lemonade. Oh, I think water kefir with uh, with fruit in it is delicious. Well, then there's that too. So add the salt. That's even better. So mix some preserved lemons with your water kefir or with sugar and water. and Or just water nice kefir with raspberries or blueberries it's delicious not so much strawberries i think well yeah but looking at again trying to what well since we're really stay focused on uh and wrap up with the the lemons (laughs) sorry go ahead i was you know i sure yes you have your opinion about strawberries and in your uh just just go I just really was trying to get to the bottom of this bacteria stuff, but uh, the most I could find was, you know, according to on food and cooking, there's a section in there about the fermented things. And, and so at salt levels of five to 10% salt to lemon is primarily being fermented with yeast. So that's where it's becoming alcoholic more so than lactic acid bacteria or otherwise taking into it. Salt that's 20% or more is, or it's salt at 20% is bacteria and yeast. So that's where that complexity of flavor is coming. It's supposedly from the bacteria and yeast, but I can't figure out which bacteria those are. But they... Really? They, there's nothing out there that tells you what kind of bacteria is in that? In any of the reference books that I normally can find that information, it does not have that. It's not as necessarily as much of a fermented product thought in that. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why that is. Maybe just it's not something that, that's really researched or, or whatnot. But the, the bacteria and yeast, they they work to soften the rind and they change the aroma, um, you know, and, and round out that, get that nice rich. It's amazing. The first time I opened it up after a month of transformation, it really is just drastically different. It's like, whoa, those are not the same. Lem- Any lemon bite that there is, is just softened. Oh, and I mellowed. love the lemon bite though. But it well, if it's still this makes something very nice and unique. And now there are other are other. If you're looking online for recipes, I just say look at the show notes and and check out some of the recipes. There's a video too of the chef that wrote the book that we were talking about earlier. He has a a, a short little brief video where he's interviewed and showed he shows how to how to make preserved lemons as well. I think that's what it's you were actually inspired sweet. by. Yep. Yep. So, but there are fast ways to preserve these lemons as well, and. You know, it's like freezing and thawing lemons and then uh, like to speed up the salt penetration and then like, like the, and then salting it for a few hours or days. It's like those kind of things will, will bring out some changes in the oil glands, but it's not, it's not the same thing. It's not the same complexity. So you really need that month or so. And Murad, the, the, the Moroccan cooking book talks about how, you know, you can leave these out 
or leave them to ferment for three or four months. At about four months, they're going to start getting pretty mushy. So that's, uh, I refrigerated mine when it got to the point where, you know, a little after a month where I liked the smell and everything. So I could kind of halt or slow down the fermentation process so it wouldn't continue anymore. But I guess then on a, on a future batch, I will try just leaving them out uh, longer to ferment, you know, and, it, and uh, you will also find some recipes online that are, again, for a kind of faster way of doing this way being i say leave out the way like way yes we know you're not a huge fan of way in fermentation yeah i mean i process you don't like to encourage anything you just do it on its own well and i think the the idea what the preserved lemons that use the way are a shorter fermentation period and i think shorter sometimes is not it's convenient but it doesn't make it taste better it's like the complexity that comes from a month of fermentation of of these lemons is drastically different than way speeding up any processes to get things going faster. Sure. It's going to work. It's going to give you something for a minute. It might take off the bite of the lemons, but it's not going to have that same complexity. And that's really what I, my issue with way for the most part, minus the okay. aftertaste that comes <laughs> got from it. it. We got but it. I think it would be probably be fine in lemons. Like I don't think the way aftertaste would really bother me too much in fruits, but it's still like, don't speed it up. Be patient. Wait a month. I mean, it's, uh, we got it. Uh, well, that patience and that whole like uh, that, you know, it's it's a relatively simple thing to do. But in Morocco, Murad talks about also he has a part in, in his book talks about how, you know, it was a big family event when he was growing up. He remembers, you know, like his uncle or I think it was his grandfather would bring the big harvest of, of lemons to a house where everyone's just kind of waiting and chilling. But as soon as the lemons show up, it's it's work time. And there's a there's a a a. a you know, production line of people, um, family members and friends that are preserving all these lemons and putting them up into a, a fermentation um, space and uh, just bottling them. And it just, I think that those kind of things are, are really cool. Those traditional fermented activities where entire groups of people get together and just, and kind just of like the kimchi things. making. Yeah. Like kimchi making, like the, the, there, there's another event to do. Although in Wisconsin, we're not really getting too many um, lemons produced, but if we lived somewhere where there were lemons produced, it'd be nice to just, you know, get a whole group of people together and preserve lemons for the entire year. It just sounds, it sounds so warm and fuzzy. Yes. Um, you know, it, uh, the other thing, this warm and fuzzy are gifts. So you could, that's, it, these make good gifts as well. With instructions on what to do with them, I would recommend. Okay. Yes. So you, you kind of have to have some ideas of what to do with them. They can, you can put anywhere, anywhere that you might have some kind of lemon taste or lemon rind, or otherwise you can use some of the rind. It's not going to give the same kind of taste as the lemon zest will, but that is, uh, that, that's also something to remember when you're, when you're preserving these lemons and putting them into the jar, you are going to need more juice. You're going to have to juice some lemons to put in to cover that next day, like you were talking about. Um, I, for the first time I did it, I just did it all the, on the same day. It's like, I pressed them all down kind of. Is there a reason why? That's what the recipe I followed before had said to do. Just kind of like press the lemons down, kind of like with sauerkraut, jam them in. But the and lemons kind of produce juice, juice though. That makes no sense. No, they do. And they produce, they, the juice kind of got squeezed out of them a lot. So I'm curious to see how your lemons turn out. And uh, yeah, I think the reason my recipe calls for waiting is because it is juicing as we speak. And then it, I, ideally it's going to be done. I mean, not done, but then the 24 hours will give me a good estimate because the jar will have a quarter of the mason jar is going to be um, just juice from the lemons I have in, in yeah, there. Yeah, I think the thing is you're not crushing your flesh as much as I did. I think, I mean, it oh, works either okay. way. So the thing is to remember, you're going to have to juice more lemons to cover that the, the, uh, the same day or the next day if you follow the recipe that you see in the show notes. One tip is to you know, zest those lemons you're going to juice beforehand and, you know, put that in the freezer or put it to save that zest. So you have zest. So you're not wasting any parts of any fruits really. And, uh, just something to think of. I mean, anytime you can freeze you're, it. I didn't think about that. Yeah. You can freeze the zest. And, and so then you have all kinds of lemony type stuff, but you can use it in Lemon, all kinds of cooking. You can cookies. use it in, you can use the, the syrup, like I said before, in marinades or, or dressings or, or whatnot. You can use this in stews or otherwise. And there's anywhere that you could use lemon or even where or where you want that savory or kind of umami flavor. Um, again, this is, uh, I don't know, 
how technical this one is like an umami flavor, but it kind of gives that savory roundness filling out of dishes. And I'm still experimenting with this stuff in, in cooking to see like where it kind of, because a lot of times it's just going to blend in. It's going to add that extra oomph of fermented goodness, but not stand out as, wow, this is a dish that has fermented lemons in it. And so it can be used subtly. It can be used strongly. I mean, you can use it in some desserts or ice creams or different things like that. Dice up a little bit of the peel, put it in something. Mm, so good. Preserved lemons. That's uh, It's good stuff. And you can use the flesh as well. It's just, it's, it's try the flesh. Try every part of it. Try the syrup. I like the syrup. You know, it's salty, but it's good. The flesh is a little, I would say if anything, maybe a little bitter, a little, it's the least exciting part of it, but it can definitely be used within reason within like um, uh, marinating meats or different ways like that. You can use it and uh, just look online for ways to use it. But the key ingredient is the rind. That's where it's all at. That's where all the flavor is. So if you have anything that you do specifically with fermented or preserved lemons please let us know as brandon's gonna say yes you can let us know at podcast at firmup.com or you can let us know on twitter at firmup facebook facebook.com slash firmup send us your comments and feedback anything to any of those any of those areas and we look forward to uh talking with you again next week firm up